For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Married Life 911, Module 2. Relationships are co-created, so before you blame your spouse, check your own role. Thus far, you've been introduced to a new paradigm to view married life, and you've had a chance to share your story. Now let's turn to another step in the process of standing on your own two feet. When couples come to see me, we often begin our sessions by going over what's happening and how they ended up in their current situation. What usually ensues is a series of stories and experiences about their journey. This is like what you've had a chance to do in the triage section. An interesting thing is that spouses largely blame each other for the state of things. We hear, I hear things like, he spends all his time at work and he's never at home, and when he is, he's watching TV or on the computer. Or, she never wants sex and it's always up to me to initiate it. When relationships hit a tough spot, it's common to view the problem as an issue to be solved. The trouble is, most often the problem gets placed squarely on the spouse's shoulder, as in, they are a problem which you can solve. So this allows you to believe that if your spouse would change, the problem would go away. So a lot of effort goes into getting your spouse to change their behavior. Spouses often resort to subtle manipulations, covert power moves, and playing the victim role in a relationship in order to get their partner to change. So I tell couples that I work with that you have a couple of different choices. You can continue to try to manipulate your spouse into making the changes that you want. You can try to find the magical combinations of behaviors that will make your spouse happy. Or you can make things miserable for your spouse in hopes that they will leave, thus taking the guilt and blame off of leaving for you. But then I offer up a radically different idea. What if you show up, be present, and pay attention to your relationship? It means you have to start telling the truth, the whole truth, with no holding back. It requires setting boundaries and no longer tolerating bad behavior. It means asking for what you want and making your needs a priority. I'm usually greeted with the the deer-in-the-headlight looks. Once, when I made this suggestion to a man I was counseling, he responded with, I'm not sure I could do that. I mean, if I really speak up and say what I feel, my wife may get ticked off and leave. The ironic thing is that he was seeking my counsel because he was thinking of leaving himself. Taking responsibility for yourself and growing up in marriage will cause spikes in your anxiety. But in spite of this, many couples have taken up this idea and fully leaned into the people-growing process of marriage. And then they've discovered that a better relationship is possible than maybe they even thought. The idea is it's the system is the issue, not your partner. Every relationship creates a system or a set of rules and patterns that guide the behaviors and interactions within the relationship. So here's how the average person goes about picking their future mate. So for the sake of the discussion, I'm going to pick on us guys, but this happens with both men and women. So you have a guy that he has absolutely no plan or idea what he's looking for. He just knows that he's lonely, and he believes that a girlfriend is the answer to what ails him. If he's lucky, he meets a woman who shows some interest in him. If she isn't too unattractive, or even too attractive for that matter, he works up the nerve to ask her out. He does his best to make a good impression, usually by posing and portraying what he thinks she will find attractive, or what he thinks women find attractive. 
If they hit it off, they begin chatting on the phone, texting, and emailing on a daily basis. They start seeing each other as often as they can, meaning he gives up most of the things that are important to him in order to be with her, and she's doing the same thing. If she's willing, they typically start becoming more and more physical in their makeout sessions. He ignores all the red flags and, and warning signs, and even if the relationship starts going south, he does everything he can to keep it together because he doesn't want to be lonely again or to start all over. Does this sound familiar? Don't feel bad about this, though. This is actually the only the surface of something deeper that happens to everyone in childhood. So let's go back to the beginning. Well, almost. Pretty much everything you do in your intimate relationship, from the person you pick to how you relate to them after you pick them, you learn from your first love objects, which would be mom and dad. I'm not talking about what you observed your parents in terms of how they related to each other, even though that's important. What's more important is how they related to you. Two factors have a powerful influence on how you were programmed to do relationships. The first is the consistency, or the lack of, with which your parents interacted with you and met your needs. If your parents were adequately attentive to you and met your needs in a timely and judicious way, you probably internalized the belief that you were important or lovable, that your needs were important, and that the world, like your family, is a safe and abundant place for you. There are no perfectly attentive parents, so none of us consistently internalize these kinds of positive beliefs about ourselves in the world. The second factor is that while you were totally dependent on others as a child, your brain had already learned about how to have a relationship. Most of your childhood experiences were stored up in a primitive part of your brain responsible for survival and the source of your fight, flight, or freeze responses called the amygdala. The amygdala is not part of your conscious memory. It stores up emotional memories, but not in a verbal picture the way most of the rest of your brain does. The amygdala influences most of your emotional responses. Plus, it influences the type of people you are attracted to and how you relate to them. Keep in mind that this is all working at a subconscious level. The amygdala's effect on emotions and behavior will be discussed further in this lesson. As an adult, the people whom you are attracted help you recreate the earliest love relationships and, in turn, the patterns from your family of origin. Because of your internalized childhood experiences and subconscious emotional memories, you will always be attracted to people who allow you to use the relationship management skills you developed as a child because they're the ones you know best and the ones that make sense. You subconsciously pick people who can mirror the kind of relationship dynamics you experienced within your family. As a side note, I don't believe in placing blame on your family of origin for the current state of things in life. However, it's important to understand our history and how our patterns develop in order to increase our ability to choose differently within our current relationships. It's also important to realize that patterns are a continued from our family of origin into current relationships are not all bad or negative. A lot of what we carry forward from our family is good and healthy. And another side note, we also carry forward patterns from one relationship to the next. So if you're remarried, you've carried forward patterns from your previous marriage into your current one. Or you seek to go to the opposite extreme, but the patterns still continue. There are three significant aspects of our relationship dynamics. One, we co-create a relationship with a partner that allows us to play familiar relationship roles that we learned in childhood. For example, if your mother was emotionally needy, you probably gained a sense of value by believing you were there for her. At the same time, you probably also internalized a sense of inadequacy because of your inability to meet her needs. You likely developed the skills of a, of a caretaker and a people pleaser, while simultaneously learning to keep your feelings of inadequacy well hidden.
These become powerful subconscious relationship management skills. Look at it this way. What value would it be for you to be attracted to people who don't require you to use your most developed relationship skills, even if those skills are dysfunctional? To do what you do best, you need to be in a relationship with people who are a mirror image of mom and dad, or at least how you experienced mom and dad. If you're with someone who isn't a good family of origin mirror for you, or you for them, you usually will either lose interest quickly, or you have to train each other how to be the kind of family of origin stand-in that you need in a partner. Both partners are equally responsible for co-creating the relationship, and they both need it to exist exactly the way it does. This means that neither partner is solely responsible for the nature of the relationship, and neither partner is to blame. It also means trying to get your partner to change never really changes anything. Most people who come to me believe that if their partner were different in some way, they'd be happy. But this is fallacy. You need a partner to be just the way they are. This may be difficult to believe right now, but I'm asking you to hang with me. Dialectic relationships occur between two opposite but interacting partners who each get meaning from the other. For example, givers and takers, pursuers and retreaters, introverts and extroverts. Here's a few examples of this complementary or dialectic relationship pattern. If you had to pursue one or more parents to get love, you likely co-created a system with a retreater. If you felt victimized as a child, you will likely co-create a system with a persecutor or an abusive person. If you had to overfunction for a depressed, needy, addicted, or immature parent, you likely co-create a system with a similar type of underfunctioner. If you were a fixer as a child, you will likely co-create a system with someone who needs fixing, or at least seems to. If you internalize shame as a child, you likely co-create a system with a partner who uses shame in the relationship. Number two, we co-create a relationship with a partner that allows us both to meet subconscious needs. This dynamic can be a little tougher to handle, but it becomes clear as you see it play out in your life and relationship. And let me kind of illustrate this with a story from my life. Pam and I married when we were in our early 20s. Neither of us had experienced the world nor life on our own away from family, and we both entered marriage with a naive belief that life would be wedded bliss, aside from, you know, the silly arguments that would occasionally surface. I realized early on that the push and pull of our relationship that it had on me, and I fought the forces by avoiding both emotionally and physically. I would seek out Pam when I wanted something from her, and I would push her away when I knew she wanted something from me. I now know that this same behavior is what I experienced with both of my parents. It wasn't long before some chronic issues surfed between us, particularly in the areas of sex and sexual desire. There were heated discussions surrounding our differences in desire. My re- wife frequently avoided the discussion and rarely initiated sex or fully engaged when it occurred, because sex was largely focused on my needs, not hers. The problem with some of these gridlock issues no matter how much discussing or compromise is going to solve it. And the reason is because it doesn't fundamentally change the system. In fact, continual discussion and seeking to have our subconscious needs met will reinforce the status quo. Plus, according to John Gottman, a marriage research, 63% of the issues we face in marriage are perpetual. They're not going to go away. So to break free of this gridlock, we had to face the difficult personal truths. So it was easier for my wife Pam to just say, I just don't like sex, and it was for her to say, I don't like sex with you. I get very little pleasure out of it. Once the emotional gridlock was in place, it was easier for us to just live within our comfort level than to tolerate the discomfort and anxiety surrounding our individual growth. 
But it's this tolerating of anxiety that's necessary for the relationship to move forward and for each of us to grow up. Growth in our marriage required each of us to live according to our individual strength and integrity, to discover the deeper parts of ourselves and, at times, to create the deeper part of ourselves. For me, I had to face my selfish sexual style by being accountable for my unrealistic view of sex, which was shaped largely by my past struggle with pornography and my deep fear of being unable to satisfy my wife's sexual desires. By focusing on performance rather than connection throughout the encounters, I kept the emotional levels just at a tolerable level. But when my wife upped her presence and began speaking up about what she wanted during sex, this forced me to face my own inadequacy fears. At the same time, Pam was struggling through her growth into viewing herself as a sexual being rather than a sexual object. She had to develop the ability to speak up for her wants, not just in sex, but in other areas of life as well. She had to face head-on her dependence on me and her fear of being emotionally betrayed or hurt. So here's the irony. While we often subconsciously search for people who can make up for the ways our parents couldn't completely love us or meet our needs as a child, we often pick those who are actually the least capable of doing so. This is true for two reasons. First, no one can compensate for an empty or wounded place inside us, except for my personal belief of God. No one has the power to make up for what we missed out on as a child, even though we subconsciously believe the right person can. And second, since we co-create systems with people who mirror our relationships with our parents, we pick people who have the same inability to love us or help us meet our needs that our parents had. So number three, we co-create relationship dances with our partner that protect us from getting either too close or too far apart. We talked about this in Module 1, but it's worth going over again as it lays the foundation for utilizing marriage as a personal growth machine. Due to the counterbalancing nature of togetherness and separateness, you can never achieve complete emotional separation from your family of origin. Since early attachment is never fully resolved, upon leaving your family you will select a partner at the same level of growth and seek to replicate some version of a family relationship pattern with your partner. This emotional attachment between you and your spouse is identical to the emotional attachment you each had in your family, and emotional fusion occurs at the same time you commit yourself to each other. Remember the first drawing of the couple leaning in on each other in Lesson 1. Each of you has some degree of unfinished business that carries over from your family into your adult relationships. Unfinished business is described as present emotional reactions shaped by past experiences. Due to this unfinished business, it's important to understand the intergenerational relationships with your family. For example, your parents' relationships with their parents and so on. This is important because parents will deal with their children in terms of their own unresolved issues just like we do with ours. As our marriage evolves, growing up becomes a relational concept and a process as well. Being in a committed relationship in and of itself will foster growing up or fusion. And again, this is referring to the Module 1 drawing, the first one. Growing up is crucial to committed relationships because it involves the intertwining of these two desires, attachment with another person and the refusal to submit to that person's tyranny. People in committed relationships often experience struggle between themselves and these two drives and fail to see that this is the process of self-development in action. So growing up within a relationship has four components. It's your ability to maintain a clear sense of self while remaining close, both physically and emotionally, to others. It's your ability to regulate your own anxieties. It's your non-reactivity towards another's anxieties. And it's your willingness to tolerate discomfort in order to produce your own growth. 
These are the four components that we referred to throughout this course. Your ability and willingness to regulate anxiety and tolerate discomfort for growth has a dramatic impact on your ability to direct your own destiny or improve your position in life. Self-regulation, which is self-confrontation, self-validation, and self-soothing, will often have greater impact on long-term relationship stability than will reflective listening, communication, and reciprocal validation. Another path to differentiation is emotional fusion. While there is nothing wrong with emotional fusion, it may drastically impact the relationship. Emotional fusion, at first, is understandable, common, and it feels good. However, quite often emotionally fused produces broad functioning, in which one partner may begin to feel used and sucked dry due to the constant neediness of the emotional fusion within the relationship. This has little to do with being wanted or desired by another person. For example, many of us want to be wanted, but at a more fundamental level we need to be needed. We also fear being exploited by those who need us. So as long as we need to be needed, we are never free to desire deeply, never sure we are desired for ourselves, and we frequently destroy the possibility of being wanted by our partner because we do things to then ensure we are needed. Fusion reaches its greatest intensity in the emotional interdependency of a marriage. The lower the level of growth in each spouse, the more intense the couple will experience fusion, and the more likely this fusion will result in relationship difficulties in times of stress and anxiety. The severity of these difficulties is the result of the level of growth of the partners, as well as the intensity of the anxiety at the given moment. In other words, the difficulties of the dysfunction in a relationship occur on a continuum from mild to severe and temporary to long term. Vulnerability to these difficulties is decreased when the level of growing up increases in one or both partners. In fact, when one partner in a committed relationship begins to increase their level of growth, the other is forced to either increase theirs or risk losing the relationship. The relationship by itself, when used properly, will pr produce growth when one partner increases the willingness for discomfort in order to produce growth in their own. Often, the other partner is forced to choose between seeking more emotional fusion, emotional cutoff from the other partner, or both in order to regulate their anxieties, or to grow themselves up. Differentiation is fundamental within a relationship if the partners are going to sustain intimacy, eroticism, and sexual desire. Problems within a long-term committed relationship are natural and inevitable manifestations of your own growth. When your spouse's importance to you exceeds your own level of growth or your relationship with yourself, there's four possible responses. One, you can dominate your spouse. Two, you could submit to your spouse. Three, you could withdraw physically or emotionally from the relationship. Or number four, you could grow up. These are the same choices that occur on the outset of every emotionally fused relationship. Once one spouse chooses to no longer accept the level of growth within the relationship and in turn begins to increase their own level, the other spouse typically has one of the following four options. They can pressure the other spouse to give up preferences through tantrums, arguments, threats of divorce or separation, or emotional collapse. They could give in, which usually leads to a passive-aggressive withholding. They could emotionally cut off, like separate bedrooms, affairs, or other over-involvement with children, work, or other outside activities. Or they could self-confront, self-soothe, and self-regulate, which will permit their own growth. Marriage can hold your spouse's ho happiness hostage, and the ransom price is your own personal growth. Spouses face the choice of stifling the other's growth, destroying their happiness, or growing up themselves. 
Dr. David Schnarch refers to these forced choice to systemic dilemmas as crucibles, or severe tests of selfhood and personal integrity built into emotionally committed relationships. So what does a healthy relationship look like? Let's examine what this looks like, and I'll present to this principle that will allow you to use your marriage as a powerful tool to help you, your partner, and your relationship grow up. So remember when you were in elementary age and your parents weren't letting you do something you wanted to do? You struggled against their authority, and in a fight of frustration, you probably declared, when I grow up, I'm going to do whatever I want. So let me ask you a question. Have you kept that promise to yourself? Most of us aren't doing what we want, and therefore, we aren't very mature. Many adults are still living like they're under some kind of parental authority. They look for other people to give them permission to do what they want. They live in a constant state of passive aggressiveness or self-destructive rebellion. They seek approval and avoid conflict. They use covert contracts and try to get other people to meet their needs. They pout, throw fits, withdraw, manipulate, and play the victim when they don't get what they want. For most, the parental authority they live under is their spouse. And while your spouse is an important person in your life, they are not your parent. My definition of a mature adult is a person who does what feels right to them, lives and acts according to their values and integrity, takes full responsibility for getting their needs met, and takes accountability for their actions, feelings, choices, and life circumstances. They recognize that in all situations they're a volunteer, they're not a victim. Many people are on a lifelong journey of coming to know themselves and be known by the people whom they love they co-create relationships with. They are willing to look into the dark places within themselves and allow those close to them to do the same. They're willing to be transparent, vulnerable, fallible, and even uncomfortable, and they're willing to be honest with themselves and with others. A healthy relationship is made up of two individuals who aspire to become this kind of mature adult. Here's a few more traits of healthy, mature relationships. Honesty, transparency, differentiation in personal space, an understanding of what is important to each partner, mutual respect, humor, good same-sex friends, numerous co-created systems, emotional maturity and stability, open communication, and healthy boundaries. In contrast, immature people tend to latch on to one or two relationships, which is often with a spouse, and then expect that person to recognize and meet all their needs, most often without even being asked. They often experience frustration and resentment when their designated partner fails to live up to their expectations. When this happens, they either try to control the person who is frustrating them, get them to change, punish them for their failure, or they look for someone new. So in Married Life 911, I'm going to encourage you to blow up your current system and create a new one. Because every relationship creates a system, and systems in general seek homeostasis and they don't like change. This is due to the comfort we all feel when we, don't know, when we know what to expect. When one person within the system decides to change and to do something different, it disrupts the system and creates an imbalance for everyone. So this change is often met with a change-back message from the other partner. This message could be anything from subtle suggestion or resistance all the way to an over-the-top massive response filled with rage. These changes could include things such as beginning to lean into conflict rather than avoiding it, being more honest and transparent, starting a physical fitness program, spending more time with same-sex friends, dealing with an addiction, initiating sex in a powerful or direct way, or telling your partner what you're feeling. So when partner A makes a personal change, this will unsettle partner B, even if partner B likes that the change is being made. So think of it like a teeter-totter. When partner A initiates a change, 
their side of the teeter-totter goes up and upsets the systemic balance. If partner B resists the change that partner A is making, then partner A has the choice of holding on to themselves and continuing the new behavior or giving in and letting the system regain homeostasis, which would be bringing back the teeter-totter into balance. If partner A holds on to themselves and continues their new behavior, and if partner B values them and the relationship, then partner B faces a couple of different choices. Find the way to pull the other partner back down into homeostasis so that they can relieve their own anxiety, or challenge themselves and start growing up in their own way. So if they challenge themselves and start to grow, often while soothing their own anxiety rather than trying to manage it, their side of the teeter-totter will grow up. And so this movement will upset the relationship system again in its own unique way. So then partner A can either bring it back down or challenge themselves and on and on we go. When two people keep raising the bar for the other by challenging themselves, the upward growth of both individuals and the relationship is continuous and limitless. This is exactly what creates a marriage that is fully alive. On the module page in our course area is a video that, that shows this whole example through a cartoon. Here's another example that I'll just read through right now for this. Steve and Michelle are somewhat lazy and out of shape. So Steve, Steve decides to start a new physical fitness program that includes regular workouts and a healthy diet. As Steve starts working out and eating better, Michelle feels anxious about his new passion and physical changes he's experiencing. He's slimming down and looking fit. He's got more energy, he's more active, and even's dressing better. Now Michelle notices other women noticing her husband. And even though Michelle likes how her husband is changing, she misses the good old days when they could just share Ben and Jerry's and sit on the couch watching their favorite TV show. She even has some pangs of insecurity that maybe he won't find her as attractive and he'll leave her for another woman. So in this state of anxiety, Michelle now has two options. She can give Steve change back messages, or she can insist that he's working out too much and neglecting her and the family. She'll warn him not to get too thin, or she'll bring home his favorite flavor of ice cream. She'll invite him to stay home and watch their favorite show instead of going to the gym. She may withdraw. She may rage about something seemingly unrelated. Or she can challenge herself and start going for a walk every morning. She can start doing some of her own research on nutrition and share what she finds. As she progresses and starts feeling energized and better about he sh how she looks, she might begin to challenge herself and start training for a half marathon. So now her newfound energy and commitment could now cause Steve to feel a little unsettled. Because maybe he's reached a plateau in his own progress, or he's even started to slip into some old habits. When he sees his partner moving to the next level, then now he has a choice to make, to try to bring her back or to rise to the challenge. So this process continues. These shifts in a system are called second-order change. They're fundamentally different from the type of change that most people try to create in co-created systems, which is first-order change. An example of first-order change might be one partner nagging, bribing, or threatening the other to try to get him to lose weight. If Steve takes this approach with Michelle and makes her anxious enough or induces enough neurotic guilt, she might actually starve herself and drop a few pounds. Unfortunately, as soon as her anxiety dissipates, she typically reverts to where she was before. First-order change has a strong attachment to outcome and rarely produces long-term growth or change because it does nothing to fundamentally alter the system. It also is unloving because it's announcing to one partner, I don't love you just the way you are, so you must change in order for me to love you. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone who tried to change you, you know just how bad this feels. 
Attempts at first-order change ignore the fact that things exist the way they do because both people have created them to exist exactly the way they do. So trying, through attempts at first-order change, to get things to be different within a co-created relationship system is like trying to push a boulder uphill. Second-order change, on the other hand, has no attachment to outcome and is therefore unpredictable. It occurs when something fundamentally shifts within the system. Plus, it has the most powerful potential for creating significant long-term change within co-created systems. Second-order change creates the great unknown and it sets the system into uncharted waters. So when a relationship shift occurs, it becomes impossible to predict where things will go. But the only way to discover new territories is to set sail and see what new worlds you can find together.